0: Welcome, I'm Uri.
1: And I'm Rifki, and you're listening to Talking Talkless, the podcast where we talk about Jewish life and life in general. How's it going, Uri?
0: Pretty good. Uh, I'm excited for Purim.
1: Yeah, hope you got your costume already.
0: Uh, I don't know if I'm going to dress up this year, but I've had some good costumes in the past. Okay. Lots to live up to.
1: What's the best costume you've ever had?
0: Um, The most fun one I can think of at the moment was I was Bob Dylan one year. That's Um, awesome. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. What did you wear? Um, So I kind of, I was old Bob Dylan meaning like mm-hmm. aged Bob Dylan not the young that's one. I think a
1: harder one to recognize
0: um well he kind of has like a signature like little mustache mm-hmm. thing nowadays that, and like thin one he, right The thin mustache and he wears like this white cowboy right, hat. Right, right, right so I kind of went with that and I also went with the um harmonica neck holder oh, thing cool. even though that's more old school that's okay I just threw that in there um and yeah it was it was pretty fun all right it's a good choice how about you
1: um, a few years, I think my favorite one was a few years ago, I was Janelle Monae. And this is, I think, before a lot of people knew who she was, but I was, I was I really into her. I still don't know her. who she is. Oh, God. <laughs> All right. We'll play some music later. Um, but she she had this really distinct, and she still does, but she had this really distinct sense of style in which she basically only wore black and white, mm. and she mostly wore suits or tuxes. Um, so I wore kind of like, I kind of I, basically a tux. My friend made me um, like one of the a drooping bow tie which was kind of her look and she had her hair also in a really distinct way and like uh, it was all in the front of her head and it was pretty tall mm. my favorite kind of costume is the kind that most people don't exactly know what you're going for but the people who do are really excited about uh-huh. it so if you knew who Janelle Monet was you immediately knew that I was Janelle Monet. so I really liked that costume
0: uh-huh. and you weren't at all worried about cultural appropriation
1: no not at all
0: well yeah okay just checking cause baby- Well, Rifki, um, why don't you tell us about our first topic?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Reverend Billy Graham, also known as America's Pastor, actually passed away this week. Ory, er, what do you what do you know about Billy Graham?
0: R- really, just that he was a big, uh, like evangelical pastor right. who did a lot of big events and TV things. And if you asked me, I wouldn't have been able to differentiate him from a Pat Robertson right. or a Jerry Falwell. But, yeah. I, but now that I know more about him, I think he was very different from them.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think um, I also didn't... I, I thought of them all kind of in the same vein. I didn't even really realize he was older. This is like a, you know, I think... Kind of embarrassing, but kind of, like, says something a little bit about our community. This is something we're so, our bubble. you know, yeah. Well, not even just modern orthodox even just, like, New Yorkers. Mm-hmm. Like, I think a lot of New Yorkers don't really know much about well, this we're in a bubble world. within a bubble. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but he actually, his name came up a lot recently in the past few months when um, this thing about Mike Pence came out, that Mike Pence has this rule. Uh, he will never be one-on-one with a woman who isn't his wife. And that was called, in the media, the, uh, the Billy Graham rule, because Billy Graham sort of had, was the original who came up with this. Aside
0: from Jewish law. Yes, exactly.
1: Um, I would, it would be pretty cool if we could find any sort of documentation that Billy Graham actually found this in Halacha and was like, oh, Yichud seems pretty interesting.
0: I wouldn't be surprised. It would be pretty cool. But okay. um, Well, what, what else can you tell us about him?
1: So um, it's interesting. So when he passed away, I started seeing online a lot of people sort of writing these really intense things about, not only about how he changed sort of the face of evangelical Christianity, but how he really affected them. Um, there are a couple of writers who are conservative and religious who are I read who, who talked about it. So I started sort of looking a little bit more into him. And his, his history is pretty interesting. First, he, when he was in his early 30s, and he started preaching, he um, really just got a little bit of media attention and sort of was one of the first religious, uh, evangelical preachers to really see the power of the media in building sort of his global reach. So he started with newspaper, but then as film became more prominent, as television became more prominent, he really got into all of these sort of industries almost, um, And then he started something called um, the Crusades, which it's it's such such an evocative word. And it's funny, like, I don't think of the Crusades as a positive thing. I imagine you don't either. But for a Christian who has a very different perspective on the Crusades, um, he started this almost like a, a series of campaigns where he would, and this, he did this for decades, where he would go to different cities and he would set up these huge events like a, at a stadium or in a public park or something like that. And thousands and thousands of people, sometimes over 100,000 people would come and he would preach. They would all pray together. And then he would ask people to come forward and accept Jesus. And a lot of people did. He actually, um, a, couple of, uh, a couple of things I read that were a little bit more cynical about him, pointed out that he actually had a lot of staff at these events and the first, you know, couple of hundred people who would come forward were actually his staff to sort of right, get, the, that. get the movement moving. I mean, which, I don't
0: think that's so bad. Yeah, yeah I think it's <laughs> very
1: understandable and, and it, it just shows his sharpness, though, in understanding sort of right. the, the same way he, he knows, thinks about the media is also the way he knows how to sort of manipulate, not necessarily in a bad way, manipulate people in, the, in a crowd in that way. Right.
0: I saw that he, he spoke to more people directly than anyone else in history. Yeah. Apparently 215 million people people yes. saw At, him live. That
1: number, 215 million, that is astounding. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling. It's one of those numbers that you can't even really have a sense of what that means. Right. For those of you who haven't heard him speak or aren't as familiar with him, we're going to play a little clip just to give you a sense. This is one of his more famous speeches. It's from Chicago, 1971.
2: Now, when you face Jesus, what is your reaction? When you're confronted with Jesus Christ... What is your reaction? The reaction of the scribes and the Pharisees was one of hostility. The people of Nineveh's day were humbled and repented when they faced and confronted God. And the question that we all ask today is this
1: question, What think ye of Christ? So Graham wasn't just a pastor for millions of individual people who then went on to form um, relationships with their local churches. He's also rose up to this position of power specifically with um, government officials and eventually having real relationships with presidents. Basically every single president since Truman, it seems like from um, from notes we have from back in Truman's time, Truman thought he was a bit of an idiot. He kind of thought he was a, a charlatan. But every president since then had a really close relationship or kind of seem to have a close relationship with uh, Graham, especially Nixon. And we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, But actually, George Bush actually credits a conversation with Billy Graham um, for turning his life around, for helping him stop drinking. He had a serious alcohol problem and this sort of refocus on religion, which really frames, you know, the the second half of his life. Um, and, And George Bush is a famous example of that. But that was something that, you know, millions of people had. So one of the reasons that a lot of people speak so highly about Billy Graham is because he was a leader in certain areas. One of the areas that um, was was talked about in a lot of these eulogies was uh, in civil rights specifically, and specifically in that he refused pretty early on, before this really caught on with the country, he refused to speak to segregated groups. So he wouldn't speak to whites only. Um, and he was really a leader in that way. He had a relationship with Dr. King.
0: I saw uh, a quote that in he said in Mississippi in 1952 uh, that, quote, there's no room for segregation at the foot of the cross. And then in 1953, he personally removed the segregating ropes at a Chattanooga, Tennessee crusade.
1: Yeah. And that's pretty pretty incredible, right? This is all before the Supreme Court's ruling on desegregation, which was in 54. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the flip side, though, just to get into a little bit more of the uh, the controversial areas, is that many people sort of called him out that this was a way in which he was sort of progressive, but there were many, many other ways, in fact, most ways in which he wasn't progressive. He spoke very negatively about the feminist movement that was happening at the same time, even when certain things happened in the civil rights movement. Um, he actually kind of cautioned the black community and the leaders of the black community to sort of like slow down, that it was it was sort of overwhelming for people. And he, he was much more into politics. So he wasn't exactly a revolutionary. But in that particular thing about desegregation, that actually was a very big deal. And people seem to really think that he actually moved the country forward in that way. Coinciding with uh, Graham's rise in power was also this sort of like more enmeshing of conservative politics with Christianity. And to just give a few examples of what that means, right? It didn't used to be so obvious that Christian or religious leaders would make public comments or private comments, right, in their their private conversations with politicians about specific policy. For example, he talks about unions and he talks about how wicked unions are, right? That's a very explicit policy, which you wouldn't automatically naturally think would come from a preacher or from a rabbi. Um,
0: He talked a lot about Vietnam. Right,
1: exactly. He talked about communism. He was very, very anti-communism and spoke specifically about the relationship between Christianity and capitalism, which again, now we kind of hear pretty often, but that was not common language used back then. But Uri, also, at the end of the day, what I also want to talk about is the elephant in the room. Billy Graham was a big supporter of Israel, right? He is on the record of, you know, part of his getting involved in politics is he was involved in around 1967. He was very pro-Israel. He was really pushing for America to help Israel to not get in the way. But after the whole Watergate scandal with Nixon, and remember Nixon and Billy Graham were very, very close, a lot of these leaked tapes came out with Billy Graham and Nixon engaged in conversation, specifically talking about Jews in a way that does not make Billy Graham look so uh, pro-Jewish anymore. Right. So
0: those tapes, the Billy Graham side of the tapes actually didn't come out until 2003. Right. But once they did, they pretty much permanently tarnished his reputation when it came to the Jews.
1: And what's actually interesting is that before the tapes that he was on came out, when the when other Nixon tapes came out much earlier, he kind of said, you know, it's regrettable he used he used language, that was, language yeah exactly right. and then he totally either he didn't remember or he was just hoping it would never happen but he totally didn't mention that he was on you know right. he, he had had meetings using you know not lovely language, language of his own um, so yeah, let's let's play actually one of those tapes. Here are a
0: couple of clips from an eight minute phone conversation that Graham had with
2: Nixon. Well, the thing that you've really got to emphasize to him though, Billy, is this anti Semitism is more stronger than we think, you know. They just it's it's unfortunate, but this has happened to the Jews, it's happened in Spain, it's happened in Germany, it's happening and now it's gonna happen in America if these people don't start behaving. Well you know, I told you one time that the Bible talks about two kinds of Jews. One is called the synagogue of Satan. They are the ones putting out the pornographic literature. They are the ones putting out these obscene films, like the thing in Time magazine, I and then Newsweek. Ruth canceled both of them. Good for her. But take Time or Newsweek. I'll tell you, it's a thing, and I think, I think really, they don't deserve to live. Right.
0: So Nixon basically said the Jews need to start behaving themselves, and Graham says there's two kinds of Jews in the Bible. One is the synagogue of Satan, and then Nixon says, you know, they they don't deserve to live for what they're doing. And actually, it's, it's funny. I have some of my own interpretations of this, but Graham was basically saying, yeah, those Jews are putting out pornographic uh, movies and literature, which I assume he's talking about actual pornography. I, I'm not sure. That's what it sounds like to but me. But then Nixon's like, yeah, just like that stuff in Time and Newsweek. He's talking about <laughs> politics. And then Graham switches yeah. gears. And Nixon he's like, doesn't care about pornography. Right. No. And then, but then Graham switches gears and he's like, yeah, that political stuff is so terrible. Ruth, who is his wife, she, he's like, she canceled the, those magazines now. We don't get them anymore. So, and here's another clip from the conclusion of that conversation.
2: Boy, i tell you, privately, we've got to be very strong with these people. we to have a real careletting with Rabbi Tannenbaum and find out exactly. And he, he, I think, basically is our friend. And, uh, I want to... You could point out this, that there's nothing that I want to do more than to be, I mean, not only a friend of Israel, but a friend of the Jews in this country, but that... That I have to turn back a terrible tide here if they don't get a hold of it themselves, and uh, and it's up to them. And they better understand it and understand it quick. And because there are there are elements in this country, you no, know, not just the birchers, but a lot of reasonable people are now getting awful sick of it. They really are. And the people that have been the most pro-Israel are the ones that are being attacked now by the Jews. And then to come I can't out, figure it out. They're going to kick all Christians out of Israel is is unbelievable. I can't figure it out. Can't figure it out. Well, it may be they have a death wish. You know, that's been the problem with our Jewish friends for centuries.
1: Ah. And
0: so Nixon thinks the Jews have a death wish. It's been our problem for centuries.
1: Mm-hmm. It's an issue. we got to work on that. And there's actually one more thing. It wasn't on those tapes, but in um, another conversation also, when Graham and Nixon are talking, Graham says, you know, a lot of the Jews are great friends of mine. They swarm around me and are friendly to me because they know that I'm friendly with Israel, but they don't know how I really feel about what they are doing to this country. So when these tapes came out, you know, uh, obviously, Billy Graham issued uh, an apology. He met with Jewish leaders, where right? He kind of did exactly what you would expect him to do. Um that's not to say that he's being inauthentic, right? I think he actually its interesting. Billy Graham, in a lot of interviews in probably the last 20 years, since he basically retired from public life, in these interviews, he talks about regrets for a lot of things. He talks about regrets for getting too involved in politics. He really moved back towards preaching and not actually explicitly talking about Republican, Democrat, specific policy, specific presidents, not getting involved in elections. Um, but it's hard. His reputation is a little bit tarnished because of certain things that he kind of pushed he he wanted to toe a line and ended up pushing a little bit further than I think he he even intended to
0: well, as I said before, I really knew very, very little about him before this week, and I've been reading a lot of articles. I've been listening to a bunch of his sermons and then especially the you know those Nixon conversations. I I do have mixed feelings towards him, but there are certain things. I I guess I become reactionary. Like I get defensive towards people and causes that I don't. I'm not necessarily passionate about ahead beforehand. And this is going to come up in our next segment also. But once I see them being attacked, I for what I believe to be unfair uh, reasons, I get defensive to them. So I've gotten a little bit defensive towards Billy Graham when I've seen some of these criticisms, right? So. So let's talk about the anti-Semitism just because I think that's most relevant and interesting to us. Um, I feel no need to defend the anti-Semitic statements that he made. And in the same way that we spoke a couple weeks ago about a line in a Jay-Z song where he talks about all the property in America being owned by Jews, I said, I'm not saying Jay-Z is an anti-Semite, but that is an anti-Semitic statement. And I would say the exact same thing about the Billy Graham tapes. What he said is, Pure anti Semitism. Was he an anti Semite? I don't know. It's funny because one of the critical pieces that was written about him that I give a little bit more credence to because it was written by a a political conservative was a piece written by George Will for the Washington Post. And he basically said the only way to say that Billy Graham was not an anti Semite is by convicting him of toadying, as George Will said. I had to look that word up, toadying. It's basically like being a yes man um, and sucking up to people. Which kind I of like think,
1: imagining, like, uh, Billy Bush in the Trump tapes where right. Billy Bush was saying, like, oh, I was just, you know, kind of going along with it. I didn't agree with him. I thought he was evil. But Right.
0: You know. and, and the thing is, when it comes to Billy Graham, there's no way around the fact that he clearly was a self-promoter. It's impossible to achieve that kind of success and notoriety without promoting yourself. And I don't think that's inherently bad. It rubs me a little bit the wrong way because it's not my personality and I'm wary towards people like that. But clearly he was a self-promoter. And the only and the way that he became so close with presidents and powerful people I believe a lot of it was about sucking up and and being a yes man and agreeing with what they said. So and I'm not saying he didn't mean those statements, but clearly if you listen to the full tape and we'll have a link to it in the description, The conversation and the anti-Semitism was really driven by Nixon, and Graham seemed to be going along with it, which doesn't excuse it, but I just think it's interesting.
1: Well, either way, I think there's a lot I learned this past week about Billy Graham, and I think he's a really fascinating character. I agree with you that ultimately I walked away feeling a little bit slimy about him. Um, Not to say, you know, I don't want to deny that he's done good things, but he's also really, I don't know, he's also really... Not the kind of guy I think I would imagine wanting to follow. Okay,
0: truthfully, that's not the takeaway that I had. Um, I was and am bothered by the anti-Semitism. I'm also, like I said, not so comfortable with self-promoters in general. And he was clearly a huge self-promoter. But at the same time, he touched the lives of millions and millions of people. George Bush wrote very personally about the turnaround in his life and crediting that largely to Billy Graham. And I do think that he brought a lot of positivity to the world. And actually, in distinction to the two pastors that we compared him with in the very beginning, Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell, uh, Billy Graham was actually a lot more accepting and softer in tone than those two. He was much less about the fire and brimstone, which was actually more out of the ordinary when he started. Fire and brimstone was what everyone was doing. He
1: actually explicitly said he was not a fan of trying to convert or trying to preach directly to Jews or Muslims. He he that's something else, but also
0: right. That was also a nice thing. But I think it's
1: related also. The Uh idea of sort of like not being as harsh and more preaching about Jesus's love and comfort and if you're in pain, come to Jesus. Focusing
0: more on the positive than the negative. Yeah. So that's that's truthfully what sticks with me a little bit more. Right.
1: I think one of the things that, um, that the reason I leave a little bit uncomfortable is because this whole idea of how religion has become so intertwined with politics makes me uncomfortable, and I think that's sort of what I, I, I see as his lasting legacy mm-hmm. in a really big way. Um, but yeah, there's definitely more. There's, as usual, there's always more to discuss, and um, we look forward to hearing what you guys think about Billy Graham and about his, his legacy.
2: Well, with everybody trying to tell us what to do, How are you to know whose word is true But the preacher just keep on bringing us the very same word And from St. Paul to Billy Graham the same is heard And the preacher said of truth Jesus
0: said as we discussed in the beginning of the episode, this week is the Jewish holiday of Purim. But for the next topic, we actually want to talk about something related to the holiday that follows Purim, which is Passover. There's an event happening in a couple of weeks to prepare for the holiday uh, at the Mount Sinai Jewish Center, which is the Orthodox synagogue in Washington Heights, um, and it's called Mansader. What it basically is, is you pay $100 or $85 if you're a member, and it's a men's only event where along with all the themes of fours in the Seder, there will be four courses of meat, four types of beers, and four Torah talks from four rabbis. This is the third annual man Seder being run at Mount Sinai. I actually don't think it's an overwhelmingly popular event. On the Facebook page right now, it says 11 going, 37 interested.
1: Right. And I actually think some of the people interested, like I was looking at... Are the... not going. And <laughs> yeah, some of them are in
0: go. Israel, first of all, and some of them are definitely not going. But this type of event has actually become very popular over the last number of years throughout the country. In 2015, a year before the first Mount Sinai Man the Wall Street Journal ran an article called man seders flow with steak and scotch, where they talk about this trend and and a bunch of the different events throughout the country. And they actually also have a video for the event at the Beth Shalom Synagogue in Potomac, Maryland, where their event was called Guy's Night Out and Seder Summit.
1: Kosher ribs, scotch, and more scotch. It's not your usual party at a synagogue, and that's the whole idea. The fifth annual Guy's Night Out at Beth Shalom in Potomac, Maryland, drew nearly 500 men who came to sample the 900 pounds of kosher ribs, 13 brands of whiskey, and get fresh ideas for hosting the Passover Seder. These guys-only pre-Seder events have spread to cities across the country. Rabbis and participants alike say that a little male bonding is helping bring men closer to the synagogue and Jewish life.
2: You know, at the beginning, I think people thought the learning wasn't going to be a serious part of it. It was really the food and the camaraderie, But the learning really was tremendous from the beginning. People come here looking forward to coming up with new, good ideas about how to make their satyrs better. But these man
0: saders also have their share of criticism. To focus specifically on the local man seder at Mount Sinai, there was a Jewish Week article in 2016 in in response to the first man seder, and they interviewed an anonymous female member of uh, the community who said... Male only bonding spaces are really important, but I think when a shul is sponsoring something, it's important to be aware of what message you're sending, she said, referring to the stoic, quote, be a man stereotype that she felt the man Seder purported. I also would not have so much gluttony associated with the event, especially if it's a Torah learning event. To charge a hundred dollars for something is a little bit ridiculous. A hundred dollars could buy a family a pesach seder. Okay, so I mean I think she kind of got a little bit off topic there at the end. And here's one more response from a male member of the community, and this is from from this year's event. This is a friend of mine that I saw on Facebook. He wrote, Every year I'm embarrassed by this event. As a concept, this is fine, but it's the man's event for men only that's much harder to excuse. Masculinity so fragile, Mount Mount Sinai Jewish Center. Yes, women have asked to attend and were turned away. What is so sacred about beer and barbecue? So before I get into what I think about it, Rifke, what do you think? Is this okay? Is this a good outlet for men? Is it a positive space? Or is this toxic masculinity at its finest?
1: All right. So if it has to be one or the other. No, I mean, I think there there are a lot of questions here and we can break them down further, right? There's the idea of having a single gendered space right there's an event that's just for men or an event that's just for women, and what we think about that, but there's also what happens once we decide, okay, you know what we are comfortable having an event that's just for women we are having we are comfortable having an event that's just for men. How do we want to create a space that is you know making certain statements and not making other statements let's just break down right what the two people were saying. the woman was saying. Yeah, there's no problem with having gendered space, but what she's saying is she's more concerned about what we're saying about men when we create this sort of event.
0: And what are we saying?
1: So the the argument that it seems to be saying about a man-sater is that let's get into man interests. What are man interests? Men are interested in beer. Men are interested in steak. Men are interested in sausage. Men are interested—there's a very specific sort of definition about what is a man sort of event. Is
0: that not true, though? I mean There are many men interested in those things. I, don't, I mean, I don't think they're saying you have to be interested in these things at, or you can't interesting. be interested in other things. I'm,
1: I'm at Shabbos Meal's More often than I'm comfortable with, in which the host offers, "Hey, does anyone want a beer?" And when women respond, "Yeah, that sounds great," they say, "Oh, look at you, right?" Which makes the the women say that. Yeah, the men say that, and which makes the women at the table feel pretty uncomfortable. Like, oh, I'm doing something that like I shouldn't be doing. Like that seems to be sort of the implicit thing. And same thing with sort of whiskey, right? Things like that. I know that I get jokes all the time when. It's like there are three salads and there's chowen and there's this and I always want the cholent, and I always want the kugel and I you know that's the person who I am and I definitely feel like there there are these little comments here or there. Am I in the minority? Yeah, proportionately, women seem to gravitate towards salads more than men. Men seem to gravitate towards beer, or towards meat more than women. But the argument that I think we perpetuate when we create programs like a man-seder in which they're serving flights of beer and they're serving steak, and when women have events and there's you know salads and maybe like a light pasta, this perpetuates that like, Rifki, you don't really belong so well in these women events.
0: Okay, I, I think you're making some fair points but I think you're being
1: unfair, and I think
0: you're inserting words into these people's mouths that they're not saying, at least in, when it comes to the Mount Sinai event, which is the one that I know about. I, I'll give you, I totally agree, if a woman asks for a beer at a Shabbat meal, and a, and a guy gives her a hard time about it, because what, what's a woman doing drinking beer, that's inappropriate and that's wrong, period, okay? But that's sort of like you so progressive. That's the negative side, and this is the positive side. Meaning, if a man says, "Can I please have a beer?" What you're basically saying is, "No, you can't have that beer because you you're perpetuating male stereotypes."
1: Are you serious? I,
0: I think do that's you, a, do you actually
1: think those that's are obviously prevalent? a
0: much more extreme version of what you're saying? But-
1: no, it's instead it's if the host comes no. and says, "Hey, men." would you like a beer that's the equivalent the equivalent is saying this is an event for men
0: no. see my problem is what both of the respo- both of the criticisms that we qu- that i quoted from the male and the female criticism they both said it's okay to have an all male space, but this one is not okay. So, what, to me, what they're basically saying is, you can have an all male space, but you just can't have too much fun because then it's not going to be fair. Like, what would what would make it okay?
1: Let me say. Let me say it differently. Okay. If on Monday night they had a man seder, and this is what the event was, and on Tuesday night they had a woman seder, and it was the exact same event, then it wouldn't be a problem. Okay. But the argument that they, let me let me read out loud from the Wall Street Journal, right? Rabbi Simcha Tolwin, who had a similar event in Michigan, calls it a hardcore evening for men only. It is steak and scotch, no dessert, no girly drinks, says the Orthodox rabbi who runs H. Detroit, a non-denominational, non-denominational H. Detroit, uh, Jewish learning center. Right? The so argument obviously is, it's sketch, not
0: the most tactful way of saying it. I want to read another quote from for, the for, Wall Street it's Journal. It's not about
1: tact. Here's right? another This one. is what it is. No girly uh, drinks. Uh, do you well, think it's he's not, like, oh, it's uh, not a very that's nice not phrase. how I meant what do you it?
0: Here's, here's a quote from the article also. Rabbi Judith Biner, a reformed chaplain in Atlanta, sees nothing sexist in male-only evenings. Rabbi Biner, who was ordained 22 years ago when women rabbis were still the exception, said she enjoys being in women-only groups sometimes and thinks men should have the same chance. She said... Guys like beer and scotch. Women like wine and mojitos. So what, she says. The point is we are all trying to figure out how to engage people. I don't care how we bring them in. Okay, so a very different side of that it's coin funny, from a woman all, reform I, rabbi. I definitely
1: disagree with her. But second of all, I think it's funny that she was ordained 22 years ago, right? It feels like there's like a there's that I can imagine sort of like my parents' friends saying things like that in a way that I don't think our generation is as comfortable well, saying things like that. Okay,
0: well, I, I actually want to go back a second. I want to tell you my reaction To the first Mount Sinai Man Seder, when I saw it pop pop up on Facebook, before there was controversy, before I saw anyone else say anything about it, okay, I saw it on my Facebook feed, I read what it was, and in my head, I was like, okay, that's kind of silly, and that does not appeal to me at all, and then I kept scrolling, that was the extent of my thoughts about it, but then and this is what I was referring to earlier when I said I I get defensive sometimes even for things that I don't feel passionate about. When I saw the attacks and the criticism on it, I got defensive and I said, listen, what's wrong with this? Why can't they have an event with, with meat and, and beer? Especially because everybody is basically saying, you're saying the critics before we that we quoted were saying, it's okay to have a male-only space, but for some reason this isn't okay. And then, you know, the, the one of them that we quoted said, oh, it's not okay that they're charging $100 for it. Like, what does that have to do with anything?
1: I, I agree. I think that's definitely a non-issue. The issue is that when women are excluded for something that isn't necessarily male or necessarily female, what women feel like Like, oh, if I have a desire for something that they're telling me is male, then I'm doing something wrong. I think
0: we're looking at it from opposite ways. You're looking at it as the shul is going to have an event with meat and beer. Oh, but that's a man thing, so we're going to only allow men to come. I'm looking at it from the complete opposite way, which I think is the more fair way to look at it. We're going to have a male-only event because men, like women, sometimes need a space. Even though it's not the same, and I know that especially in Judaism, it's not the same to say like, oh, because women have their spaces, men need theirs, because Historically and still now, women don't have equal opportunity, and I totally agree with that. But still, I think there are. So you're times, saying it no, happens. So it's so they said let's have a let's have an event for men only. What should we have at this event? And obviously, like we saw with the Wall Street Journal article, Mount Sinai did not invent this. This is a common thing throughout the country that's becoming more and more popular. So we want to have a male-only space. What should we do? Oh well, I think I personally, whoever it is that put it together, and all my friends, we like meat, we like beer. I think it's fun. Yeah, it's kind of like cliche, but it's cliche for a reason. Let us to do it that way. And when you look at it that way, I don't think it's fair to then say, "Oh, but how come women aren't allowed? What if women like meat and beer too?" That's fine. They could like that and they could have a different event for that. But this is was created specifically as a male-only event for cre- for productive purposes. It also happens to be it's spoken about in the in in some of the other articles that I saw where it's been shown to be the case that women tend to connect with religion more than men. And numbers of synagogue attendance for women are actually much higher than they are for men when you look across the denominations. So I actually think there's a a need, perhaps even in some ways, especially in the non-Orthodox circles, men actually have to be reached out to more than women because the women are actually the ones that are much more involved another one of the articles spoke about how at this uh, at this event men really open up and talk about things like infertility and they talk about uh, workplace issues and and really personal topics and sharing of themselves that I don't think they would be able to do in a mixed setting, which is just one of many reasons why I think not only is this, you know, I'm not even saying that this is so positive. I'm just saying it's okay. And whatever happened to live and let live to let people express themselves and make events the way that they want to.
1: I I mean, live and let live, right, means that I have as much freedom as anyone else and I don't feel like in this case I do have as much freedom. But you
0: acknowledge that that it's okay to have male-only spaces.
1: I personally think there's no problem with gender-only places. Okay. With gender-only spaces. I think that there can be men events and I think there can be female events. My problem is, and I I feel like a broken record, but my problem is that a male-only space that perpetuates gender stereotypes and make people who don't fall into that stereotype feel less than is really I hurtful. I think you're giving awful, them too especially, much credit, <laughs> especially in Orthodox Judaism, which is a which is a community in which gender is already something that people are so sensitive about, and people already feel less than. Especially women feel less than. But I think all you're the being time. so
0: unfair. What do you expect them to do? Do you have, do you think they have to bend over backwards and go out of their way to serve food and have an event that defies gender stereotypes? This How is what they want. How does it defy
1: gender stereotypes to create an event? Either create this event to be. Uh, mixed gender, no, or we're if, talking, they want, we're just, if they again, want single you're working ge- backwards if they want single gender event, which is totally then they fine, can't serve meat it and should beer. not be something with language that clear. Uh, I remember the event uh, language from the first event. I wish it were still up on Facebook. Um, I couldn't find it, but I remember from the first year where they were a lot more clear about it. It wasn't just like, "Oh, here's a male-only event." Uh, by the way, this is what the menu is going to be. They were they did the same sort of like gir- girly no drink. girly drink. I think that was listen, very clearly a part of the uh, marketing. That was c- clearly part of what was drawing men to this event. I'm not going to defend Which the text the men, that we don't right, have in front I, of
0: us, but I think I think part of it was tongue-in-cheek and part of it was they are self-aware and they know that this is not... PC for our moment, and they're feeding off of that and turning it into a joke. You could say a distasteful joke, but I think they're that's where that was that language was coming from. It was not they were self-aware and being ironic and saying once we're having a male event and we're gonna serve beer and and meat, we're gonna like you know in the Wall Street Journal article it said the the flyer for one of these events was a red Ferrari with instead of the wheels there were matzahs. Like they're 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 turning it into a joke, and I I don't I think you could say it's distasteful. But I don't think you can say it's inappropriate. The
1: problem with a joke like that. Is that the joke has victims behind it? There is someone being made fun of. There is someone making a joke, and there is someone being made fun of. I don't. And agree the with women that. are the butt of the joke
0: no I don't think anybody is being I think you could say people are being excluded I don't I think it's way too far to say people are specifically being made fun of in that language it's the exact same
1: idea as like uh, we don't have our space where's our space to eat our meat where's our space to drink our beer that's
0: that's the next step that's not what they're saying that's not what this is
1: it's definitely not the same thing but I do think that they are two sides of the same coin and I think that this is really harmful for the community and especially for the community members who do not fall into these stereotypical lines okay
0: well as I said I'm a community member that does not fall into those stereotypical lines. You don't live in the anymore. Have, Your voice doesn't count. Okay, but <laughs> yeah. I, have, I have no problem with this event happening. And you know what? I actually think it's because of attitudes like the one you're expressing that that things have happened, such as Donald Trump winning, because people oh. are so tired. I mean, people are so tired of hearing now we the figured out misplaced how we won. rage against these type of things, where there's I think a lot more productive and important targets for that type of anger to be expressed at, and I think a man is a totally, maybe silly, but completely benign event, and should not be the target of that righteous indignation.
1: Oh boy, what a way to end. Man wants to be a macho, macho man our show thank you all so much for listening as usual we'd love to hear feedback please comment on our facebook page we want you guys to be interacting with each other and not just us but also send us emails we love hearing from you email us at talking podcast at gmail.com
0: thanks as always to drive in productions for sponsoring us and thanks to triple threat trio featuring rage brigade as being the official band of talking talkless bye everyone Bye. bye